Hello to everyone. As we continue to go through the quarantine restrictions and challenges, we have also been given the additional challenge of dealing with the loss of Artie Hubbard and the void we are feeling in his passing. This is a podcast that has special meaning. In February 2019, I came to Mr. Hubbard with the idea to create a Bighorn podcast that would highlight the members of our community and their stories. We had always included profiles of our members in spectacular fashion in our various publications. But as I discussed with R.D., this would be a vehicle to have an emotional connection with the stories that run throughout our community, told in their own words. And even though he still wasn't clear on what a podcast was, he gave me his blessings. And we agreed that these interviews would serve as an oral history of our community, and he agreed to be the first guest on the Bighorn Podcast. He had the faith that we would do a good job of presenting the community and our members as the interesting people with their fascinating stories in a positive way. He never wanted approval or involvement in the presentation of these stories, even his own. And for that, I'm honored and grateful. This is that first episode, unedited in its original form, brought to you by Leeds and & Son and AT&T. We cherish the opportunity to hear his story again in his own words. Please enjoy the ride that has affected all of us in a positive way. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Bighorn Podcast, featuring amazing people with extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and I will be hosting these accomplished people as they tell their stories in their own words. We will be talking to our guests about their lives and the various twists and turns that have occurred that brought them to this point in their journey. We talk a lot that everyone has a story, and by telling their stories, we can learn, feel, and become informed in a way that gives us all a greater connection to our community. This edition of the Bighorn Podcast is brought to you with the support of Leeds & Sons Fine Jewelers, who have been a part of our community for more than 70 years. And later in the show, we will hear from Terry Weiner, CEO of Leeds & Sons, about their involvement in our community. Now let's get started with a story that has affected all of us. Welcome to our first guest, R.D. Hubbard, the chairman and managing director of Bighorn Golf Club. We start at the beginning, and since most of the things that affect our lives are instilled in us at a very early part in our life, it all starts in Smith Center, Kansas, which coincidentally is about the same geographical size as Bighorn is today. Could you start us on this journey, Artie? Well, I was born and raised in Smith Center, a town of around 1,800 people. Uh, I was the baby of eight, and all eight of the Hubbard family, four boys and four girls, uh, graduated from Smith Center High School. My parents, uh, owned the local ice house as I was growing up, and 
This was during World War II, and I started delivering ice to home residents uh, when I was 11 years old. And the advent of the refrigerators <laughs> came in shortly after the war. And so my parents, uh, in addition to the ice house, then they added a little uh, restaurant. And uh, so I worked in the restaurant uh, while I was going to school, washing dishes, uh, waiting tables, whatever it took. My mother did all the cooking and everything. So after uh, my senior year in high school, we were fortunate enough that uh, we had, our basketball team had made, won the uh, regionals and qualified for the state tournament. And the day I graduated, I left Smith Center for the wheat harvest from Texas to Canada. I was 18 years old. And um, we get up into North Dakota and it comes time to come back to Kansas and I decided I was gonna stay there in this little town called Alexandria, North, North Dakota. And there was a pretty good reason because this little hotel we were staying at, the maid happened to be the owner's daughter and she was very attractive. But uh, come October, the first part of October, and the first uh, snowstorm hit. And I decided that was not where I wanted to be for the winter. <clears throat> I returned to Smith Center, and all of my classmates and everything were either in college or had moved on. And uh, so I had a brother living in Kansas City, and he invited me to come down to Kansas City and sell fuller brushes. So I started selling fuller brushes uh, when I was 18 years old. And within about two to three weeks, I was the top selling fuller brush man in the Kansas City area. Well, my brother was also selling fuller brushes. And in those days, uh, You'd go door to door, you'd take the order and you would get, then you'd come back two or three days later and deliver the order and collect the money. And the salesman got 50% of uh, what they sold. So I had several days that I'd sell $100 and I'd make $50. Well, I'd never seen that kind of money uh, in my whole life. And my brother, uh, he was a, I'd have to say, a pool hustler and a shuffleboard hustler. So I ended up, <coughs> we would end up in the bars in the afternoon playing pool and shuffleboard. And uh, for some reason, I realized that that was not uh, 
the best atmosphere to be in for an 18-year-old. And I started answering some ads, and I got a job selling non-boost shoes in downtown Kansas City. But what really saved me is uh, my fiancé was a year behind me in school, and uh, so she graduated in May of 1954, and we got married the end of May of that year. In the meantime, my high school basketball coach had received a coaching job at Butler County Community College, and he offered me a scholarship to come and play basketball, which really saved me from probably uh, being a derelict the rest of my life. But anyway, the plan was that my wife would uh, get a job and help put me through school. It turns out she got pregnant the first month we were married and never worked a day in her life. <laughs> but uh, so in those days, you could get a teaching certificate in Kansas with uh, two years of school. And so I got, uh, by this time, after my sophomore year, at Butler, and I got an associate degree. I also had a second child by that time. I didn't really realize what was causing it, and uh, it took me a little while to figure that out, but by this time, uh, we had two kids. I get a job offer from a little town called Tawanda, which is halfway between El Dorado, Kansas, and Wichita for teaching and coaching. I lived in a 27-foot trailer house, eight feet wide, with my wife and two kids. I moved the trailer house to Tawanda, and I got $3,200 for teaching and $400 for coaching. And in those days, they paid you uh, over 12 months. So I was getting $300 a month and had a very successful uh, basketball season, taking a team that had won five and lost 16, and we won 21 and lost three. The team that beat us in the regionals was a team that we'd beaten by 40 points in the regular season. Uh, it was sort of like the uh, Gonzaga last night getting beat by St. Mary's, who they beaten all the time this year. But anyway, I decided that I had to make more money. I couldn't live on that. And my whole goal was if I could ever make $100 a week, I'd have everything that I wanted. They offered me a little raise. I think it was like $200 or something. But I had the summer where I was getting paid. I moved the trailer house to Wichita, 
and uh, started answering ads. And uh, I ended up going to work for this company called Service Autoglass. They had one autoglass store in Wichita, and I got my first paycheck, or my first salary, was $90 a week. So I'm thinking, boy, I'm getting close. And uh, Art Lankin, who was the owner, really took me under his wing and uh, gave me the opportunity uh, to learn what entrepreneurship was. In addition to the autoglass store, he also had a muffler shop. And <clears throat> he put me in charge of the muffler shop and told me that every dollar we made, I would get 25 cents of, 25%. And that got my interest. Little did I know the muffler shop was not making money but we were able to uh, turn it around, and I would be uh, down in the pits, chain putting on mufflers, shock absorbers, whatever it took, because I knew every dollar I saved, 25 cents of it was mine. So in a very short period of time, he moved me into the headquarters, the main office, and, uh, we started expanding the stores, uh, the autoglass stores, and we added three more in Wichita, and uh, then we started expanding outside of Wichita, <clears throat> and we started a company called Safe Light Autoglass. Well, actually, it was Safe Light at the time, and they manufactured laminated glass, but only flat glass. And in those days, all of the windows in cars were made out of laminated glass, not tempered glass. So we started wholesaling uh, throughout the state of Kansas and uh, pre-cut the windows for cars and uh, would ship them 24-hour service, and, and that's when we started expanding uh, the windshield business as well as the flat glass business. And today, uh, that was in 1959 when we formed Safe Light, and today uh, it, we built it into the largest windshield glass uh, replacement company in the United States uh, <clears throat> from Zero in seven years, we were doing over a hundred million dollars in volume, <clears throat> and uh, a company called Royal Industries. In the meantime, I should say that Art, in a couple of years after I've been there, Art gave me an opportunity to buy into the company and increase my salary enough to pay. Uh, for the the stock that he sold me. So I didn't have any more take-home money, but I did have an interest 
in the company. So in 1967, <clears throat> we start manufacturing our own windshields. By this time, we were the largest uh, buyer of windshields from the different manufacturers as we had warehouses in like six or eight different cities at the time, Dallas, Atlanta, uh, some other places. And so <clears throat> we decided that to manufacture our own windshields, which was not an easy thing to do at the time because our your manufacturers was Libby Owen Ford's Pittsburgh Plate Glass Ford Motor Company and a little company called, at the time, Guardian Industries. And so we went into manufacturing our own windshields and that, <clears throat> I gotta say that it was not easy for a new manufacturing company to compete with those big companies, which were all the original equipment manufacturers for the cars. But we ended up uh, successful. And a company called Royal Industries came in and made an offer to buy the company. And <clears throat> Art made a decision to sell and I was offered the job to stay on as president of Safe Flight, and uh, which was another where I met my second mentor, which was J.R. Johnson, the president and chairman of Royal Industries. So we went from very small glass windshield manufacturer into a fairly large company over the next five or six years. And <clears throat> so while this was going on, by then we were one of the largest users of flat glass that we would buy from the raw glass manufacturers to make our windshields. Uh, and I was down visiting PPG's plant in Wichita Falls, and the vice president of sales said to me, uh, Forco Glass is for sale. I understand that you guys are looking to buy it. Well, I didn't know that Forco Glass was for sale. They were very small. They had built their first float glass plant and were having uh, manufacturing problems. But that afternoon when I got back to Wichita, Kansas, I called the president of Forco. And the next morning I was in Clarksburg, West Virginia, negotiating to buy Forco glass. And <clears throat> I ended up with a management contract with an option to buy the company in the name of SafeLight. The company, Forco was in debt uh, to the banks and the federal government. 
the Economic Development uh, Division of the federal government for the tune of $32 million. And <clears throat> so my first job was the management contract I had with them, I had a five-day cancellation clause. I had 100% control of the company, and I could cancel and walk away with five days' notice. Well, the year before we took over, we went there in January of 1977, my wife and I, Joan Dale, who was a different wife by this time, <coughs> Uh, moved into the Holiday Inn in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And it was the coldest winter in 130 years. That's when we had the shortage electricity and everything. And uh, they actually removed light bulbs from your room so you couldn't burn <laughs> electricity. I took two people with me. Uh, one was a accountant and the other one was a a guy from our windshield manufacturing. And uh, so I renegotiated all of the loans of the $32 million, and I made every everyone cut their interest rates. I had some 2% money that didn't pay, no principal until the year 2011, and this was in 1977. Well, it turns out that we didn't know how to make float glass, and so I was fortunate enough, uh, I went out, which I've done in most all of our businesses that I've been involved in, and that is to <clears throat> find the best young people that uh, know the business that we're in. And so Ford Motor Company had that, the float glass process was invented by Pilkington of England and they held all of the patents. And, and so there was two companies, LOF and PPG in the United States, that were the only two that were allowed to manufacture float glass under Pilkington's license. So Ford Motor Company wanted to get, <clears throat> get into the float business, and Pilkington refused. So they put a team of young engineers together and reinvented the float glass process. Well, once Pilkington saw that Ford could make it, then they decided to license them. And so all of these young guys that uh, had invented it again, were a little bit unhappy that uh, they went ahead and signed a patent agreement and paid royalties. And so I hired two of the top young guys that came to work for me at uh, Forco. And they did know how to make float glass. So to make the long story short there, Within that was, we took over in January. I went to, <clears throat> well, I got to back up a little bit. In this same period of time, 
Royal Industries got taken over by a company called Lear Sigler, which was a big conglomerate. Royal was a conglomerate, and Lear Sigler was even bigger. I went to the Lear Sigler board meeting in June and gave them a report that said uh, the company was now in the black. Uh, <coughs> we had we'd restructured all the debt, and we had quite a little bit of cash uh, in the bank. Well, it's very obvious to me that uh, they, Lear Sigler had no interest in the float glass, and they really had no interest in the glass business. So in July or August, I got a hold of the chairman, and J.R. Johnson by this time was the uh, vice chairman of Lear Sigler, and he was, he was very unhappy that Royal got taken over, and he had known Lear Sigler for years and did not think that they would be uh, the ones that would be taking them over. So anyway, I went to the two chairmen and I said, if uh, you're not going to exercise the option, I would like to do it personally. So that was in August. In September, uh, I get a call and said uh, that they were not going to exercise the option. The option to buy the company was basically uh, about a million three hundred thousand dollars. And they said that I could go ahead and exercise it, and I had to indemnify them for like a million dollars of they were worried about getting sued or something. So I exercised the option. I, this was in November when we closed, of 1977. I had $10 million in the bank, cash. I had made a deal with all the suppliers back when I took over that I would pay them cash for what we bought and I would pay them out on what we owed them over six months, which we did. And uh, so the company was in very good shape. We borrowed a million dollars from a local uh, bank in Clarksburg and we put up 300000 in cash. And I was the major shareholder, but I brought in the two guys from I brought from Ford, J.R. Johnson in for 10%, uh, and a couple of my other friends. And so we came up with, we did the 300000 and we put 240000 of that in as a subordinated debenture, which I didn't know why, but an accountant had suggested, in case we ever get enough money, we can get that out. Well, so we actually had 60000 in cash. And uh, in the investment, 10 years later, we went from the smallest glass manufacturer in North America to the second largest in the 10 year period. We never had a down quarter 
in sales or earnings for 10 straight years. We set a sales record and an earning record every quarter for 10 straight years. So in 1988, Drexel Burnham, who had banked me as we had expanded and opened glass manufacturing uh, plants around the country and up into Canada. And uh, so we take the company private as Drexel Burnham with, as my partner. And we took it private for $1.1 billion. So the initial uh, $6,000 investment for a 10% ownership in the company was then worth $60 million. And several of my original people that I brought in who were people from Safe Light that I'd worked with all the time there. As soon as we went public, why they sold their stock, but the ones that stayed in, uh, like the Jabera family and JR and myself, and we all uh, did very well. So now we still own the company, even though we had loaded it up with debt. And we were going to pay down the debt and uh, hopefully uh, sell the company again. Well, we had a big recession starting at about 89, I think the oil crisis, some other things. And so we were not that successful, but we were, were able to sell it to the Japanese uh, in 1992. And we made a little money, but nothing of what we had hoped for. <laughs> but anyway, so that's when uh, I exited the glass business. So where do you want to go from here? Well, <laughs> another part after that is your involvement with racing, uh, horse racing. You've been involved in that in quite a while. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. And then it culminates in having Hollywood Park and um, where, again, you could have had a twist and turn if that had all worked out with uh, the NFL football team. Well, while I was still at, at uh, Forco Glass, who the year after I'd bought Forco, we bought out another company <clears throat> that was in the glass manufacturing and they were owned by a French company called St. Gobain, which their company in the United States was American St. Gobain. So we took and uh, changed the name of the company from Forco to AFG Industries. And uh, a lot of people wanted to know what AFG stood for. I'm in Boston for an analyst meeting, and I had these big uh, stockbrokers out the night before for dinner, and comes up, what does AFG stand for? And I said, well, AFG stands for awful fucking good. <laughs> and that's really, we had, we had nicknamed, I mean, we'd come with that. 
So the next day, I'm at this luncheon with all of these uh, potential uh, stock investing people and a lot of women. This one guy gets up and he says, I will never invest in a company that has <clears throat> no more imagination than have initials for their name. Well, my boys that I'd been out with the night before, they start, tell them what it stands for, tell them. <laughs> so finally, I did, and I told them it stood for awful fucking good. That afternoon, that guy that stood up, he sent me a copy, he bought 10,000 shares for his own account, and started putting these people in, and for years he was... <laughs> He was a solid investor with us, but so while I was still in the glass business, an opportunity came up. Kansas uh, was going to allow par mutual racing. And so myself and a partner applied for the racetrack in Kansas City, Kansas, and we were successful in getting the license, so we built a dual facility, two grandstands, two different racetracks, one for greyhounds and, and one for thoroughbreds. Our greyhound track was extremely successful uh, starting out. We uh, became one of the biggest uh, in the country, and we opened that in, I think, probably 1987, maybe early 88. And uh, at the same time, I'd been going to Rio Doso, New Mexico for since 1961, racing horses there. And uh, the track was in trouble, and I ended up buying it in 1988, in August of 88. And uh, so this time then I had the Woodlands in Kansas City, and I had Riodosa Downs. Some friends of mine uh, in the horse business we're on the Hollywood Park Board of Directors, and Marge Everett was the chairman. And even though it was a public company, she ran it uh, just like uh, she owned the whole thing. So Marvin Davis, uh, she had a board of directors of everybody that was anybody in Hollywood or in uh, well, Hollywood or business in L.A., the chairman of Elad Cook, who was the chairman of uh, one of the big oil companies, and uh, Aaron Spelling was on her board, Marvin Davis, who I mentioned, and uh, John Forsythe, uh, uh, Cary Grant, all of them were on her board of directors. So... Harry Ornest, who was on their board, and Tom Gamble uh, called me and said, 
Marvin Davis wants to sell. He wants to get rid of his stock. In those days, it was a REIT, and you could only own, no individual shareholder could own more than 9.9% of the company. And uh, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. They kept after me, and, uh, and so we ended up, uh, I bought 4% of the, of the company, and they, they took uh, some more of Marvin's shares and went to Marge, and, and I'd known Marge because uh, I was racing in California at this time. Hollywood Park uh, also owned Los Alamitos Racetrack, which is a quarter horse track. So they went to her and said, well, you know, they wanted to put me on the board of directors. This went on, and finally she told them, well, I'd have to have a nominating committee meeting, and they'd have to, and the months before, she had put three, three new board members on or two. There wasn't any nominating committee. There wasn't anything, so... Finally, uh, in July, she told them she wasn't going to put me on the board of directors. And so by this time, uh, they were causing a lot of problems uh, for her. And so they wanted to try and get control. And uh, so I said, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it immediately. So you had, if you took over 5% of the company, you had to file with the feds, uh, you know, your ownership in the company. So I went from 4.4% to 9.9% in less than 10 days. And they each had 9.9%. So that gave us roughly 30%. Uh, and so we started a proxy fight to get control of the company. And as I said, she had all these powerful people on her board, and not one of them stepped up and bought any stock to try and uh, help her. We ended up winning that proxy battle and I'll never forget, they had announced that after it was obvious she was in trouble, they announced that uh, Steve Wynn was joining the company and would be the new president and everything. And uh, they had a picture of him walking around the grandstand that made the uh, newspapers and stuff, and Steve and I had been friends in that he was financed by Drexel Burnham, Mike Milken, in all of his expansion in the casino business. So, <clears throat> <clears throat> makes me a little nervous that they got Steve Wynn in on this type of thing. So this was the end of December and the proxy fight would be finalized in January. So every year 
the time I would get down to Barbados with all of the horse people from Ireland and England and play had a golf tournament and play golf and this. So I'm down in Barbados and I get this call from Steve Wynn and he wants to meet me. And all I could think is this ain't good, you know. So I said, okay, I'm coming back and uh, I'll come to Vegas uh, on such and such a date. So I walk into Steve's office at the Mirage and I'm expecting him to tell me, you know, get out of this deal and walk away. He said, uh, he said, I've looked at this deal, Hollywood Park, and he said, you're the one that should be running this. Her big advisor on the board was Merv Griffin. I'm sitting there, and I don't know if you remember, but when Steve took over the Golden Nugget downtown, Merv Griffin had this big television show, and he moved it from the Strip down to Steve Wynn, the Golden, so they were very close. And they had a long-term relationship, which I found out later, going back to their early days. But anyway, I'm sitting there. He gets on the phone. He calls Merv Griffin. He said, I got D. Hubbard sitting here in my office. He said, I want you to meet with him tomorrow. And uh, he's now going to become the new chairman of Hollywood Park. <laughs> so we agree to meet. I mean, Merv he was extremely close to Marge. Anyway, agreed to meet at the Santa Monica Airport, 10 o'clock the next morning. So I fly in, and there's Alan Paulson, who was on her board, Merv Griffin, Aaron Spelling, a couple others. And uh, so... They finally say that you've won, and so we're here. We want to know, you know, what you're willing to do for Marge. So I finally said, I'll give her 175000 a year for the rest of her life. And uh, anyway, we make a deal. Now somebody's got to go over and tell Marge Everett she had just been replaced. And uh, so <laughs> not one of those guys would do it. And they had this, at the time, a little advisor who I'd known from Texas when we were at uh, AFG and we did some business. He had run Boone Pickens's uh, investment deal in the gas business, but he had moved to San Diego and started his own firm, David Batchelder. So poor David was the one that had to go over and tell Marge she'd just been replaced. <laughs> Thank God she refused to take the 175000 a year. She didn't want a contract. She was very unhappy. And uh, she died like three years ago. So 
from 88 or whatever it was to now. Well, it was actually 1990 because uh, we took over uh, in January 1991. Hollywood Park had lost $30 million in the last five years. And before that, they were profitable. Uh, they were a public company, and as I recall, the stock was selling for like $3 a share or so. We come in, and uh, I got rid of the REIT, opened it up as a public company, refinanced it, and uh, spent $25 million the first year fixing the place up to the old tracks of lakes and flowers. And uh, we became profitable. Uh, the stock got up uh, to 30-some dollars a share. And in the meantime, I'd started buying up other racetracks. And I had seen the handwriting on the wall it was that horse racing was not going to survive uh, against the casinos, and the Indians were going to be able to uh, open casinos on their reservation. We saw that coming. So I brought Turf Paradise in Phoenix. I bought uh, a couple of tracks up in Portland, a dog track and another one. Anyway, with the Riadoso in Kansas City, I ended up with seven racetracks. And I thought I could go in and I could get the law changed, which uh, to where a racetrack would be able to have slot machines to compete with the Indians. Well, it didn't take long for me to figure out that uh, that's not easy to change <laughs> the politics. Arizona was where we first tried, and little did I know that Arizona was basically uh, the majority of the people and the legislators were Mormons. It's the second largest Mormon uh, state in the country. So I found out it was easier to go in and buy uh, casinos that were already in operation than it was to try and change the law. The only state I was actually able to change the law in was New Mexico, and it took me like six years to make that happen. But um, so we ended up with slot machines at the racetrack in Rio Doso and the other tracks. But so I started uh, selling off the horse racing tracks and buying casinos. And uh, so we had a company that is was just sold out now called Pinnacle Entertainment. We changed the name from Hollywood Park and I sold Hollywood Park Racetrack to Churchill Downs. And uh, so I ended up with the only 
tract I still owned was Riadoso. And uh, I owned it for 30 years, from 88 to last year I sold it uh, in 2018 uh, after owning it for 30 years. Never one year did I ever make money in Riadoso. <laughs> but it's where uh, my wife and I first met, or first spent time together, and it was my first love was the quarter horses. So I subsidized that for 30 years. But anyway, so we end up with Pinnacle Entertainment and ended up with around uh, 11 casinos. And in 1990, 1994, I guess, uh, I resigned as chairman and basically thought that I was retiring once again. You did bring up uh, about, I didn't need to go back uh, on Hollywood Park. So Al Davis, who owned the Raiders and was playing in L.A. at the time, we became acquainted and everything. And so we, we reached an agreement to build a new football stadium at Hollywood Park. And I was going to be a partner Hollywood Park was going to be a partner in the PSLs and the suites, which is the only two things that the uh, individual owner has 100% uh, ownership of. Everything else is into their sharing of profits and everything. So we go to Denver and we meet with Pat Bolin and Christensen uh, from Carolina, Jerry Jones. They were the uh, stadium committee. And we lay out this plan. And uh, Al had a absolute fixed cost contract to build the stadium from the largest contractor in California. So if it went a penny over the contract, the contractor had to pick it up. Well, it starts out, Richardson, well, you can't build that. I just built one in Charlotte, and uh, you can't build that for that amount of money. And we said, well, what difference does it make? We're, we got a contract in this. Well, it really turns out that they didn't like the idea uh, of an outsider, not an owner of the team, uh, sharing in the PSLs. I was going to do all the marketing for the PSLs and the suites, and Al was, you know, he knew he was a football man, but he was not a salesperson. Make a long story short, uh, we have a press conference to announce uh, that 
he was moving at the Hollywood Park and this. And uh, the people from Oakland came down, were, had all the press at Hollywood for this big announcement. 10 o'clock press conference comes. Al doesn't, he's in the nether room. One o'clock finally comes. And uh, he comes out and announces that he had made a deal to move back to Oakland. Well, he ended up suing the NFL because they interfered in our contract. And they had made lots of promises to him about Super Bowls and this. And then they just kept changing them and changing them. And so the lawyers basically said that Hollywood Park's the one that really had the lawsuit because it was contract interference. And I was naive enough to think that I'd be able to bring another team in and do the stadium there, so I refused. I met with Chicago, I met with Buffalo, I met with Arizona. My biggest prospect, and I met with Seattle, they actually <laughs> moved their equipment down here and the NFL, 30 days they had to move back to Seattle. But anyway, our hottest prospect was actually Tampa Bay. And I came very close to making a deal with Tampa Bay and uh, they ended up getting a new stadium. Every one of those teams that I met with ended up using us and got their new stadium. So anyway, we were talking about it then when the Rams announced that they're going to build the new stadium at Hollywood Park. It turns out it's the exact same piece of ground, the exact same acreage where we were going to build ours. And so the LA Times run a story, had a picture of our old stadium that we designed. We had made a model of it and everything. And uh, so everybody said, oh, it's too bad. You know, look what you could have had. So a couple months ago or so, <laughs> my wife, John Dale, says to me, I just want you to realize that if you'd have built that stadium, we'd still be living in L.A. You'd still be running Hollywood Park, fighting the traffic, and we would never have experienced Bighorn and the quality of life that we've had here for the last 25 years. And I said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and, uh, and I really... So that brings us up to Bighorn. Well, and we want to start on Bighorn, and, and thank goodness for the NFL that brought you here. But before we go on to the Bighorn experience, we'll just take a break before going on and hear a short message from Terry Weiner and Leeds and Sons, and then we'll get into the Bighorn experience. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we now welcome Terry Weiner, the CEO of Leeds and Son, and he's here because he's been a great supporter of this project from the very start. 
and we'd like him to say a few words about his involvement. Terry? Thank you, Marty. It's such an honor to be here. You know, in our 73 years that we've been in the Coachella Valley, we've heard so many wonderful stories. And it's exciting that you're able to share these stories with your audience. We're just pleased to participate. And again, we're very excited to be a sponsor. Congratulations. Thank you, Terry. It's great to have you with us. And we look forward to talking to you uh, quite a bit in the future. Okay, now back with R.D. Hubbard. And because of the twists and turns, now we've got the project that we're all so fortunate to be a part of, and that's the Bighorn Golf Club. Um, how does that start? Well, myself and Ed Allred and my old mentor, J.R. Johnson, were all um, members of La Quinta. And we decided we needed a new place to play golf. Uh, the powers that be at La Quinta uh, had put in a bunch of new rules. All we cared about was going out and playing golf. And at that time, Allred and I might play up to as many as 54 holes a day. So anyway, we decided that we were going to uh, apply at the Vintage Club. So we all three uh, put in our application. I bought a house subject to approval for membership. All Red bought the penthouse in their terraces and uh, J.R. bought another house. Anyway, Joan Dale and I uh, go to dinner with the membership chairman and his wife, and they told us we'd been accepted and uh, we'd be new members. Two or three days later, I get this call from the chairman, and he said, uh, we're sorry to tell you, but uh, we found out that your friend, Ed Allred, runs abortion clinics. And we just can't have that, a member at the Vintage Club, uh, in that business. They'd be protesting out in front, the anti-abortionists and all of this. And uh, since you're his close friend uh, and everything. We're going to have to rescind our offer of membership. So Ed and I get blackballed. Somewhere or another, they didn't connect <laughs> JR, and he ended up being a member at the Vintage for years until we did this. But anyway, so a couple weeks later, I get this call from Ed. And this is 1991. And uh, he said, I found us a new club. 
I said, oh, yeah. He said, it's called Bighorn. And uh, so come up. They had a trailer house as the sales place, no clubhouse. Uh, the locker room was in a trailer. That was the extent of it, the pro shop. And we ended up uh, joining. I was the number seven member to join Bighorn, and I think Ed was number eight or whatever. And we ended up uh, buying a couple lots uh, each. And so I start building a new home. I brought in Jim Colbert and Ed Berger, and they both bought lots and started building their homes here. So five years go by, Westinghouse had changed managers, general managers, every year for five years. <clears throat> the new general manager would blame everything on the old general manager. They had less than 50 members, and half of those were people that myself and Colbert had brought in. And uh, it became obvious, I mean, they were trying to sell the the place, and, and uh, they kept coming to me, and uh, we tried to help them in different scenarios, new type of membership, different things we they tried. But so finally, uh, the price got down to where it was very hard to. Uh, say no, I'd never been in the development business. I knew I had been in the golf club business with Colbert and I at one time. We owned 30 golf courses around the country, but he basically run them, and I was just a passive investor. But anyway, so I called a meeting of the people that had homes here and had an investment, and uh, made a proposal to uh, buy Westinghouse out. And uh, so there was like 10 of us uh, that all agreed to invest. I was the largest investor. Yegan uh, was the second, Yule uh, Grossberg. And uh, George Mace. So we had some solid uh, partners, and they had all they all had homes here. We absolutely agreed we would never get our investment back, and we were just doing it to protect. Our, we wouldn't get our investment in Bighorn back, and we were buying it to protect the investments that we already had in our homes and property here. And so in the meantime, during that five-year period, they had built the clubhouse, the old clubhouse. So now we had a 18-hole golf course and a clubhouse when we bought it. And 
they had sold a few uh, lots, but very few. And so part of the infrastructure was in, but the majority of it was was not in. And uh, they had $160 million invested. And we basically bought it for 20 cents on the dollar of what they had invested. Well, I don't know <laughs> exactly what happened, but uh, we were able to start selling new memberships and lots. And two years after we took it over, lots that Westinghouse was trying to sell for $200,000, we were selling for $2 million. It turns out to be one of the best investments that any of our original investors, <laughs> we all agree it's one of the absolute best investments we ever made. Our return on our original investment was over 600% in the 20 years uh, since we owned it. Now, after I took it over, I had heard that well, I knew Safeco owned the property across the street, and they were getting ready to build uh, a new golf course across the street. Well, we had 115 acres that we owned across the street over there, and I ended up selling that to Safeco. In the meantime, uh, I had heard that they had tried to make a deal with Westinghouse to joint venture the golf courses. So I called the chairman and the president of Safeco, set up a meeting, and basically we took over here in April made the deal with Safeco in June to where we would be, we would put in our golf course, they would build the golf course across the street, and we would own the golf courses jointly. They would own their real estate on, over there, and we'd own the real estate over here. So, Starting the 1st of July, as part of Ideal, they started picking up half of the losses at Bighorn at, at the golf club, which was in excess at the time of $2 million a year. So we go, finally got all the permits, they wanted Fazio to be the designer of the course. And 
he had told him no because he had already done uh, at the time three courses here, the vintage, the quarry, I guess that was two. And uh, so Colbert and I go down to Masters and meet with Fazio, drank a lot of red wine, and at midnight, Colbert and Fazio are hitting golf balls down Main Street of Augusta, Georgia. During that period, he finally committed that he would do our golf course. So about three weeks went by, and we hadn't heard from him or anything. So I said, Colbert, you got to get a hold of Fazio. He reaches him over in Europe, and he didn't quite remember committing. <laughs> but anyway, he, he agreed to do the project. Well, so now years go by. Got all the permits, got all the design, had the heavy equipment, all moved on site. And when we got Fazio, I told Fazio, I said, Tom, I don't have to pay for this. And you got to understand, Tom had done two other courses for me at the casinos, one in Indiana and one in Louisiana. So I had quite a little bit of experience with him. I said, I don't have to pay for this, so spare no expense, which he didn't. <laughs> but so a week before we're going to actually start construction, I get the call from Safeco's chairman and everything and said, uh, I've got to tell you that we are no longer in the real estate development business, and we're going to have to sell our interest in the project uh, there at Bighorn. And I said, oh, and they, and they said, and you're the logical buyer. I said, I can't buy it. I just bought Westinghouse. We did this. So we tried every way in the world. We put together a lot of, they had just been taken over by Washington Mutual or whoever it was. And they told them at that board meeting, they came out of the board meetings when they called me and said, we're out of the development business. And there was just no way that they, they could stay. So finally, I fly up to Seattle and with one last proposal trying to talk them into staying in. And they said, tell us what you can afford. So I told him, here's what I could afford. You'd have to finance 100% of it, 8% interest, a revolving line of credit, where if I pay it down, I can go back up if we need to. About 10 minutes later, they come back in. We had a handshake, and we had a deal. So now... Not only do I have to pay Fazio for building the most expensive course he built, <laughs> uh, we've got a whole new debt load to take on. Well, the good news was that 
Fazio was the one designer that people would actually buy lots ahead of the golf course being completed. And so while they, they're just starting construction, we open up the first phase of the lots on the canyon side on lot on hole number 13. And within a week, we'd sold them out. I didn't realize the sales office had people that were interested in this. So, make a long story short, we upped the price, we upped the price of membership, we did this. One year and one week after I'd made the deal with Safeco, I paid them off. And the reason it was one week instead of one year, I had one lot that didn't close until that following week, so I, I wanted to do it in a year. So I was afraid to pay them off 100% because I was afraid they'd say, you know, you're a revolving line. I mean, so I kept $300,000 line of credit with them for like three years. Then I cut it to 100000 and uh, finally, of course, paid it off. But So that's how it all started and the success. I think the easiest uh, way to tell the story is we now have 530 members at Bighorn, 490 golf memberships, and 40 social memberships. We've sold 140-some new members over the last five years. The average age is 56 years old. We've now have sold a little over 80 new memberships in the last two years, and our average age of those members are 53 years old. So what we've done with our new legacy membership and all of that is we've assured the future of Bighorn for the next 30 to 50 years, because all of these young members are going to be the ones that keep the club going. And if you look at the other clubs around the valley, uh, their average age is probably in the 70s uh, to 75. So when we really look at Bighorn and we look at the new clubhouse, And that's made a tremendous difference in all of the new members joining. And Jim Colbert and a couple other members came to me and said, we need a new clubhouse. I said, we don't need a new clubhouse. There's nothing wrong with the clubhouse. So I start walking around and start looking, find spaces that used to be massage rooms and stuff were now just stored full of junk and everything. 
The original clubhouse was built for one golf course, 250 to 300 members. We now, as I say, had over 500 members, two absolute top golf courses, and we had built the spa, the marketplace, the steakhouse on the canyons, and the investors had paid for all of that. We'd never had an assessment at Bighorn in the 20-some years since we took it over. So once we decided, let's say once I decided, I guess, that we did need a new clubhouse, we started in January of 19, or 2017. We hired an architectural firm, hired a contractor, and I told them both that the one thing that had to be done is we were only going to miss one season. So we were going to open the new clubhouse the 1st of November of 2018. To make that happen, it, in California, everybody would tell you that's impossible. But some way or another, they accomplished it and we opened November 3rd and November 4th of 2018. And I think that it's recognized now as probably the most modern, functional clubhouse anywhere in the country. And uh, so I did have to assess the members. And we thought we were going to build it for around $70 million. It ends up closer to 80. So we raised $35 million in the assessment from the members. And I built four penthouses up on the roof overlooking the 18th fairway and green and down valley, thinking that those four penthouses would pay for the rest of the clubhouse. Well, so far, we've sold one of the penthouses, and uh, we're struggling to uh, get the others sold. And hopefully, uh, 2019, and 20, we will be successful in uh, getting the rest of them sold. And once that happens, the future of Bighorn is set for the next 30 to 50 years. Well, not only has this been a great success story about Bighorn, but it's also important to note how much this membership, this club has given back to the community because it's not just a matter of success. 
I know you've always felt an obligation to make sure that we do give back. You want to touch on that just a, a bit? I would say that Bighorn, from a philanthropy standpoint, has the most generous members. you got to understand that Bighorn's membership is made up of basically all entrepreneurs that basically started from nothing and built their companies and their uh, success uh, on their own. We don't have uh, a list. Just let me say that our members are real people and they understand uh, what life is about and giving back to your community is very important. And so at Bighorn, in the, I think originally it was, Probably 14 years ago, when I got the call from Ann Marion, who was an old friend in the horse business, who owned uh, Tandy's and Radio Shack and them, and she said, I want to come and meet with you and uh, want to discuss Eisenhower. So I agreed to meet, they came to my house, and they were having a fundraiser for Eisenhower. And she wanted a commitment of what I thought Bighorn could do. So in the end, I said, I finally committed that we would raise two to three million dollars, I can't remember. Anyway, we start soliciting and uh, in a week's time we had surpassed the two million two and a half million mark so I put up a thermometer in the lobby of the clubhouse like they used to do for United Way and I set a new goal to ten million dollars and our membership came forward and we were able to raise that in a very short period of time. So that's how we started. To this day, Bighorn and Bighorn members have contributed over $75 million to Eisenhower alone. Total charity giving throughout the whole community has now exceeded 150 million uh, from our members and from the club itself. One of the first things I did when we took over is we formed Bighorn Charities, which was to benefit our employees and their children uh, for scholarships, uh, English is a second language, different things in, in that nature. And it was immediately successful 
and very well funded. Then Selby Dunham comes along, cancer, breast cancer survivor, and comes up with this idea for BAM. So the first year that they did the tournament and stuff, all of the husbands, basically, we had to buy holes on the golf course. And they ended up making around $3,000, and that's after we had, the members and <laughs> had put up, uh, let's say, 25, 30 million, or 1,000. So I told her, I said, if we're ever going to do a charity event at Bighorn again, the minimum that we're going to contribute is $100,000. And so that's how we started the BAM. They have now given to Eisenhower, to the Lucy Kersey uh, breast cancer, and to the Pendleton Foundation the last few years for bringing uh, breast cancer survivor into Eisenhower. And they've now contributed, I think, in excess of, this year we'll put them over 13 million, I think. So about four or five years ago, Joe Kirby comes to me and wants to do something more for a charities deal in the Valley. And we formed Bighorn Cares. This last year, Kelly Levy, who uh, runs the foundation now, and visits a lot of these uh, nonprofit organizations to see what the project is that they're requesting money for. But we gave out over 70 recipients this last year, almost $600,000. So it's continued to grow. It, I, in my own opinion, Bighorn Cares is the most important charity event we got going on here because it affects so many underprivileged people here in the valley. And we only do it for specific projects. Uh, so we don't give them money to operate on or to pay salaries or anything like that. They have to have a specific project. And uh, I think you'll see Bighorn Cares continue to grow along with the rest of our charity giving here from Bighorn. Thank you, R.D. And I, I just got a couple of questions for you before we end this. One thing I want to point out to everybody, if anybody questions R.D. Hubbard's memory, I will tell you that this last, <laughs> this last uh, period of time certainly proves that he has a complete uh, recollection of all these events that have affected his life and in turn affected our lives. Uh, one of the things I'd have to ask you is that you've had various partnerships in your life, but I know one of the most important partnerships you've had is with uh, Joan Dale, and that's been 48 years as I understand it. 48 and, years in December. 48 years in December. 
that has to have had a big impact too on, on all the stories that you've told and where you are today and, and the future. I've got to say that uh, without John Dale over these 40, actually, <laughs> it's right at 50 years now because we did uh, have a relationship for a couple of years before we were married. But she was there through all of the events that we talked about, especially in the glass industry in the early stages. And uh, she's been a partner, and uh, it's been a great partnership. Um, what person has had the greatest influence on your life? Well, probably the one that made the biggest difference in everything was Art Lankin, the original owner of Service Autoglass and Safelight. He uh, he taught me principles of business, but more importantly, uh, how to treat your employees. You know, it gave me, when I first got the taste of entrepreneurship, there's many, many times that I had people working for me that was making more money than I was. But I was the boss, and that was the important thing. And so when I'm 21, 22 years old, I'm dealing with people in their 50s and 60s that were heads of the other glass companies and this type of thing. And uh, so I've had the experience of benefiting from those people that have been in business for a long, long time to where I was just a young person. But so Art was a major influence, and then J.R. Johnson, who gave me the opportunity uh, to build Safelight into the company it became. And I will say this, the one thing I am truly proud of is Safelight is still in existence today. They are by far the largest windshield replacement company in the United States and uh, we started that company uh, 60 years ago this, this year. So for have a company still there and still carry the name, I'm very proud of that. Amazing. You mentioned employees, and I know that they're as important to you as the members. Uh, what do you look for in employees? And what do you attribute the longevity of the people that have worked here, many of them well over 20 years? Well, I've always had the philosophy is I don't want to own 100% of 
whatever the business is. I either want my employees to be partners or profit sharing. And everywhere I've been, and I'm also, I never, every one of these different companies and things that we started, I never took an employee or stole an employee away from whoever we sold the company to. Whatever the business was, I went out and found what I thought was the most qualified uh, people in that business and brought them in. And just like when we first took over Bighorn, we formed a profit-sharing deal that is still in existence today where every employee uh, participates in our bonus program, everything at the end of the year. And that's from our maintenance people right up to the top management. So I've had that, that's been a lifelong philosophy of mine. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we have the loyalty and the longevity of the employees. I have three or four people that work for me in various past companies, and they will tell you that once you work for R.D. Hubbard, you always work for him. And they're still loyal to this day, even though uh, they're in total different businesses and that type of thing. So I'm very pleased about that. And should be. One last question. Good. With all your accomplishments, what still drives you today? Well, I guess I don't like the alternative. And I find that if you're not staying busy, whether it's playing golf or playing gin or whatever it is, uh, you got to keep your mind active. You need to keep your body active. And uh, so it's just, I look forward to the future. I've still got one last deal in the long-range planning for Bighorn, which I won't disclose to you what it is at this stage. But... Uh, each one of those things that we've done here at Bighorn, they weren't planned like 10, 15 years or so in advance. It happened. The reason we built the spa is because we would give the people come, the husband would play golf, loved the golf courses, and the wives would say, uh, well, I think we need to look around a little more on this. So I built the spa for the women. To this day, the guy doesn't get to see the golf course until they've taken a tour of all of our facilities. The women are sold before the husband ever goes out on the golf course. And uh, so with that said, I think we'll wrap it up. Thanks, R.D., <laughs> for sharing your story. And by the way, we've only touched on the highlights. There's more great stories and advice, and it's available in Mr. Hubbard's book, 
All you can worry about is tomorrow. I hope that in the future you will join us again. And again, I'd like to thank Leeds and Son for being a, a proud sponsor of this. And again, Mr. Hubbard, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Marty.